Welcome to the Dwell Church Sermon Archive. Dwell is a family defined by the love of God and committed to giving it away. Here is this week's message. Thanks, Blair. That was impressive. Full chapter right there. That was a lot. She even said phylacteries correct, so... I mean, we're killing it today, I think, already, to even get to this point. Uh, thank you guys for being here today. Today, we continue through Matthew. Here at Dwell, we believe that Scripture has power. We believe that it has truth, much more truth than any nonsense that I'm up here saying. So uh, you may wonder, actually, when you hear, uh, like, you know, us read a ton, a lot of Scripture, uh, why are they, like, wasting all their time with this? And the answer is very, like, simple and, and pretty sort of, like, you know, almost obvious, but, like, no matter what happens now over these next, you know, 20 minutes, two hours, you guys heard how much scripture there was. It could be a long time. Uh, no matter what happens now, we can at least say that if you show up at Dwell every single uh, week or most of the weeks at least, uh, then you are going to have heard most of the book of Matthew uh, spoken over you, which is kind of like a beautiful thing. It's almost like a safeguard against any sort of like, you know, nonsense and sideways energy that we could bring, that the text, that Jesus's uh, words to us are always going to have power over our lives. So, uh, today, we are going to see the way that even this ancient text has power over our lives, but before we do that, we're going to have to get into some, like, terminology before we can really get into the, like, meat of the text. This is one of those moments when I really wish that somebody had created, like, the Sesame Street kind of magic powers, you know, where I could just, like, wave vaguely over here and it would pop up over my head. That would be amazing right now, but instead, you guys are just going to have to, like, hold on and listen, all right? First term you need to know is scribes and Pharisees. They were basically the religious elite of the time, okay? So the scribes and Pharisees were at one time two distinct classes in Israel, but by this time they were probably more like one sort of collective group. They would administer the religious rites and preside over different festivals. They enjoyed status and respect in their community. Um, and really, if you've been following along with the book of Matthew, more than any of the other gospel presentations of the life of Jesus— uh, the Pharisees and scribes get a really bad rap in Matthew. Matthew does not like these guys. And the idea there might be because uh, Matthew is writing primarily to Jewish people, and so these were like their leaders. He's kind of like hitting, like saying, hey, these are the ones that you know, right? Like these are your religious elite. Uh, next up is a woe. So what is a woe? A woe is hardship, distress, or horror. Uh, this is different than what the Canadian rapper version of woe is, which I think means working on excellence. See, my research is broad, actually. Uh, so I found out that when you're running through the six with your woes, you're actually in a, uh, the sixth district of uh, Toronto, perhaps, I believe. I forgot that detail, actually. Uh, and you're going with your woes who are other gentlemen who are your friends who are working on excellence. So if you're running around with high achievers in Canada, that is also a woe, but that's not the type of woe that we're talking about today. The type of woe that we're talking about today is actually from the Greek word ua. It's all vowels, all right? There's no, it sounds really stupid, but uh, you can say that to your friends and impress them later. Uh, and it means horror or distress or intense hardship. So when Jesus says, woe to you, he's essentially saying, that's what's going to come upon you. The final word that you need to know is hypocrite. It means to be a play actor, two-faced or false. Um, 
This is actually the other word that Jesus uses seven times in this passage. So there's seven woes in this passage to the Pharisees, and he calls them hypocrites seven times. Uh, Hypocrito actually was originally meant to mean a play actor, which is like an actor would get up and sort of like uh, the reason like the two-faced idea is because they would like put on another face and then put on a show for people. And by this time, it was common not even for Jesus, or just for Jesus, uh, it was common for other like writers and political people of the day to use this as like an insult, as like a dig to their enemies of like, hey, you guys are fake, right? Uh, it could also mean pretender, um, which I believe was the inspiration for the Foo Fighters song. Uh, but uh, for us, it's safe enough to say that it means false, inauthentic, fake, phony, whatever it is that you want to throw onto there. So now let's put all of our new words together. And if you want to take a look at verse 15 again, it could actually read like this. Disaster and horror come upon you, you religious elite, you play actors. All right, so now we've rewritten those sort of like three very common words that you're going to hear all the way through this passage. Now you have to ask the question, what does this have to do with us? Right, we always ask that here at Dwell Church, what does this scripture have to do with us? Um, hopefully none of you are employed as a religious elite I didn't see any of that when I saw you walk in because none of you had phylacteries on your head, which is basically like an ancient GoPro, okay? So it was like a box, uh, and you would attach it right here on your forehead, and you'd tuck scripture in it, and they'd say, man, I got scripture right on my forehead. I must be a really holy guy, right? And then they'd have these, like, long fringes and tassels. So, like, from a mile away, you're seeing this guy who's a rabbi, and you're like, man, he must be an extra holy guy. In fact, Jesus says you make your phylacteries uh, broad and your fringes long, which tells me that not only did they, like, walk around with a box of wood with scripture in it, but it was, like, actually a flex on their friends to make it bigger than their friends' box of wood, right? Like, you know somebody had to, like, take that to the nth degree and walk in with, like, a pizza box on their forehead of, like, I am the holiest guy that there is out there. And Jesus is saying that is all nonsense. You guys are hypocrites. Now, hopefully, like I said, none of you are employed as rabbis today. I know that you're not Pharisees because uh, the Pharisaical movement actually ended in about 70 uh, A.D., so, like, right after the time of Jesus, there were no more Pharisees, which should make us ask the question, why in the world is Matthew talking so much about Pharisees? I mean, we have to believe that the Holy Spirit inspired this text, that it was guiding Matthew and what he would write. And so the Holy Spirit knew that there'd be no Pharisees within 70 years of writing this text, or even 40 years, whatever it is. So why? Why are we talking about it? I believe uh, that this actually does have modern-day relevance to even people like us, and I think we have to sort of like change the question that we're asking. It's not why are these Pharisees so bad, but what was Jesus trying to protect us from? Like what is Jesus actually trying to set a guardrail for? Using the Pharisees as an example of like here's some really bad guys, don't be like them. And if we can ask that question or if we can sort of indulge that idea, then I think we can actually read these passages as if they were written to us. Because we don't have any Pharisees in our midst, but we sure do have hypocrites. Right? Don't look around. All right? Don't, uh, please. This is going to get really awkward, actually, if you do that. Hypocrites still exist because sin still exists. I want you to think about this for just a moment. And this is going to be like a building thought. So if you're just, if you can only pay attention for 30 seconds at, the, at a time, start it now. Okay? So, like, uh, sin started with Adam and Eve. We broke God's law. We didn't live the way that he called us to. 
Then he gave us the Ten Commandments, and immediately after giving us the Ten Commandments, he gives us all of like the rest of Exodus and Deuteronomy and Leviticus to like help us understand how to do it, how to live life when we fail at following through on the Ten Commandments and the other laws that he has for us, right? So basically, we sinned. God tells us what sins are in the Ten Commandments, and then he tells us how to recover from sinning. And that's the whole sacrificial system, right? And yet, recognizing that we fail being the good people that we try to be, there's this other temptation that comes in even after that. And it's this temptation to sin and then to pretend that you're not and pretend that you're better than that and pretend that you're not a sinner and pretend that you don't even need forgiveness. It's kind of like a doubled up kind of sin, right? Like, it's exponential, actually, once you start down this hypocritical path where you're sinning and you're like, no, no, I'm not, I'm not doing anything wrong. And you're trying to play as if you're better uh, than other people. You're trying to play as if you're better that you're, than you are. In fact, what's even more ironic and terrible about this whole thing is that we as Christians, if you're a follower of Jesus, we should actually be the best at sinning than admitting that we sinned and accepting and celebrating Jesus' good forgiveness for us, Right? Like, that should be the skill that we're really good at. And yet, if you ask 10 people on the street to describe Christians, I imagine hypocrite would instead be one of the first words that pop into their minds. It's tragic. I don't want us to read this passage as a woe to a person who lived 2,000 years ago and has long since been dead, but instead as a woe to us. Woe to us for all of our hypocritical actions for our play acting, for our fake, inauthentic lives. Far be it from us, from you, for you and me, to be hypocrites. I want you to think about it this way. I find some beautiful symmetry here. Jesus actually opened his like, teaching ministry at the Sermon on the Mount with the Beatitudes, right? He's saying, you know, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. And he's painting this picture of what it would mean to be a beautiful community following after his teachings and actually living as the people of God. And he actually begins this section, which in Matthew is the last uh, full long section of Jesus' teaching. So this is the, the final week of Jesus. He's opening a passage of teaching right here with telling us exactly who not to be. These woes tell us how not to live as the Beatitudes tell us how to live. So we're going to walk through these seven woes, and I want you to actually try as hard as you can to take sort of like self-assessment through these, all right? Don't think of it as like, man, those Pharisees must have been rough guys. Instead, ask the question, how much do we miss the mark? So the first woe is woe to you for missing Jesus' kingdom. Jesus was right in front of them, and still they wanted to follow on their own way. Verse 13 says, But woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you shut the kingdom of heaven in people's faces, for you neither enter yourselves nor allow those who would enter to go in. Jesus is hitting on something here that there's a reality to rejecting his free gift of grace. There's actually an eternal punishment for not accepting Jesus. That's the weight of what he's trying to throw out here. That when you shut the kingdom of heaven in people's faces, they no longer will get to enjoy heaven for eternity, right? They will not get to be with Jesus there. And he's saying to the Pharisees, not only that, but you're not even going in yourself and you're not allowing anybody else to go in. This is a terrible and weighty thing. These guys were supposed to be God's duly designated representatives on earth, and instead they're looking at God's son face to face and ignoring everything that he's saying, even fighting with him over what he is saying. 
A few weeks ago, if you were here, Jesus told the parable of the wicked tenants uh, who wouldn't pay and then killed his own son. And now Jesus is actually calling them out for this very, very thing. To us, I think what we have to realize is that we are either leading people into the kingdom of heaven or we are not. It's sort of a binary choice there. That either you're opening up that door because you're enjoying the kingdom of heaven and you're saying, friend, come on in. This is where you belong or we are keeping it closed to others. It's kind of a scary thing that I think about a lot uh, in my particular role in the church uh, because I have to get up here and say stuff, right? And it's scary uh, because I know that what I am saying is either going to be helping people enter into and enjoy the kingdom of heaven or it is going to be dissuading them from it. But I think for each and every one of us in our normal everyday lives, even if you're not up here talking into the microphone, we face the exact same challenge. What you say and do and how you live your life is either going to be welcoming people into the kingdom of God or it is not. So, Here's what we're going to do, just so that we don't hear all of this and pick on those lame Pharisees and everything like that. I want you to join me in taking a hypocrite self-assessment, okay? So at the end of each of these woes, we're going to do a little bit of a uh, self-assessment. We're going to go one to seven, all right? So you can write this down. If you can keep your score or if you can keep it in your head, that's fine. Uh, At the end of the time, we're all going to stand up, and whoever had the highest score is going to be the least Pharisaical, and we're all going to split. No, I'm just kidding. We're not going to do any of that. This is just for you, all right? But here's the reason. I know it sounds kind of like cheeky, right? We're not like deciding our Hogwarts house or anything based off of this. All this is is an opportunity for you to actually take what we're talking about and keep it over or out of like, you know, cloud level and actually bring it down to heart level. Because at the end of the day, if scripture is not affecting the way that we live, if we're not asking honest and hard questions of ourselves, then what are we even doing here? So here we go. Seven means this describes me perfectly. I am this person means this doesn't describe me at all. Okay, so seven, this describes me perfectly. One, this doesn't describe me at all. And this first woe that we're talking about is woe to you for missing Jesus's kingdom and for leading others to do the same. Okay, so think about that. At the end, uh, you'll have a chance to sort of like process all of these. So think through that. One to seven. Seven, this describes me perfectly. One, this doesn't describe me at all. You're going to see that the first six of these woes are actually connected in pairs. So the first woe is for missing the kingdom, and the second woe is more so about leading others to do the same. It says uh, this in verse 15. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you travel across sea and land to make a single proselyte, and then when he becomes a proselyte, you make him twice as much a child as of hell as yourself. Now, a proselyte is like a follower uh, or a disciple, a convert, you could say. When you proselytize, you're making a proselyte. And I think what could be happening here is a reference to back in the day, this really weird practice. The Pharisees uh, would love to like, you know, it'd be cool if they found somebody that they knew in their hometown and they're like, hey, you should be my follower. And they'd be like, that's great. But then if they traveled to like Greece and got somebody and they got that guy to follow them back, they'd be like extra points right? Like, this is so impressive. Uh, This guy doesn't even follow. And in fact, if you got somebody who is not Jewish at all to become your proselyte, then you were like king of the Pharisees, right? So I think Jesus is hitting a little bit on that idea of like how crazy that practice was. But even more so, Jesus is catching on an idea that somehow people that are more wrong are more willing to make proselytes. 
Like, have you ever noticed that? That, like, there's some sort of weird inverse relationship to, like, how crazy your opinion is to how free you are to talk about it? Like me, I come up to somebody and I'm like, hey, uh, you should check out Jesus. It's good and you'd like it. And uh, you get to spend eternity in heaven. And But it, I don't want to be weird. Like, so uh, if that's, like, too much, then that's fine. Like, I don't want to be rude. That, that's, yeah, you know, whatever you think, right? And then somebody walks up to me and they're like, have you tried crystals? Like, you know, your chakra is messed up, right? Like, I found out how to be financially independent, right? Like, all the kind of stupid stuff that people are always, like, pushing on each other. Like, why is it that the more bonkers the opinion, the more free that you are with it? And yet, I think we all have to be responsible for the opinions that we're pushing on to other people. Like, what's the question for us? What are you actually converting people to? Have you converted more people into fans of Seinfeld than you have Christ followers? Have you proselytized more for C.S. Lewis books than the Bible? Will someone go to heaven and tell Peter that you told them the most important news that Gaetano's was the best Italian in Denver? Now, obviously those are all me, right? But it makes me like question, like what in the world am I talking about? Like why, like what am I doing with my days? What am I doing with my conversations? When I have the ability to share with someone the most important news uh, that they have ever heard and that will change not just their life here on earth but their eternal life forever, why in the world am I proselytizing for these other things? So what about you? What would you say that you have been proselytizing? Here we go, hypocrite self-assessment number two, seven. This describes me perfectly. One, this doesn't describe me at all. Woe to you for leading others to miss Jesus' kingdom. What do you think? Take a second. One to seven. Where would you put yourself? The next woe is a woe to you who confused gold for God. A woe to you who confused gold for God. Here we see Jesus call out the Pharisees for making oaths on the wrong things. He says, Woe to you blind guides who say, If anyone swears by the temple, it is nothing. But if anyone swears by the gold of the temple, he is bound by his oath. You blind fools, for which is greater, the gold or the temple that has made the gold sacred? He goes on to say even more about different types of oaths that they were making. And oath-making was a big deal for people back then uh, because they didn't have as full out of like a contract system as we do. Uh, we live in kind of this time now where like your word means absolutely nothing. Like if you notice that, like really it's just what you can contractually and legally hold someone to saying. And instead, like our words are just completely meaningless, right? Uh, Cross-reference like every politician from the past 30 years, right? So like you guys get what I'm talking about. I'm sorry if you think there's one really honest politician out there. I didn't mean to offend anyone. But uh, here's what I'm saying, that they believe the exact opposite. So these oaths were like a huge deal. And part of what Jesus is calling out here is that the Pharisees were sort of like using these kind of sneaky ways to like make an oath that you can break. And obviously an oath that you can break is like worth nothing, right? So if you've got this kind of thing where you're like, oh, well, I didn't technically uh, swear by the temple. It was like uh, the gold in the temple, right? Like you're just like concocting this like crafty way to get out of something, right? And that's kind of messed up, especially if your oath is like your bond back then, all right? But also Jesus is highlighting here that the Pharisees and the scribes are showing their priorities by making their oaths on the wrong thing. He's saying, what's more important, the temple or the gold in the temple? The sacrifice or the altar that makes the sacrifice mean something? Heaven or the God of heaven? So Jesus is saying two things here. First, you should keep your oath. 
And second, he's exposing their priorities, which are all backwards. Everything in this world actually belongs to God. So the rest of this milling about and worrying about this and that and deciding, you know, which one's more important, the temple and the gold and everything like that, like Jesus is saying, they're missing out on the fact that all of this is God's. And God is the only one that makes any of that sacred or makes it mean anything at all. I wonder if we ever get stuck sort of focusing on the wrong things. Getting hung up on earthly things, thinking that they're more important than what's actually holy. I would say a Denver version of this is woe to us who love the mountains more than the God who made the mountains. Woe to us who love money more than the God who actually provides all of that we need. Woe to us who think that this world is enough. It reminds me of a C.S. Lewis quote. I've used it before. He says, in the weight of glory, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at sea, we are far too easily pleased. Really here, the woe to us is for being far too easily pleased with the simple and temporary pleasures of this world and not thinking on and striving towards the beautiful eternal life in God's kingdom that he offers to us. All right, hypocrite self-assessment, seven to one. Seven, this describes me perfectly. One, this doesn't describe me at all. How often do you find yourself confusing gold for God? The next woe is a woe to you who choose rules over righteousness. A woe to you who chose rules over righteousness. In the last one, the hypocrites misjudge God's priorities in life. And in this one, they actually misjudge God's priorities in his own word. Verse 23 says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you tithe mint and dill and cumin and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. You blind guides, straining out a gnat and swallowing a camel. Jesus was telling them that they were more worried about the minutia of the law than actually fulfilling the law themselves. They're more worried about rules than they were about righteousness. And that little reference about like a gnat and a camel is a reference to the idea that they used to like strain out their drinks to keep impurities out of it. And, uh, you know, the more wealthy you are, the better strain that you could afford, the better, you know, quality of cloth to pour your wine through. And he's saying you would strain out a gnat, which would mean you're getting most of the stuff out, but somehow you would miss a camel, which is obviously like hyperbole. He's saying it's crazy that you guys would worry so much about this tiny, tiny, tiny little thing and yet swallow a camel in your own drink, right? I love this one because I believe that it actually speaks to me and crushes me the most. See, because I am the type of person who can talk to you about the proper mode of baptism or who the author of Hebrews is or whether or not there will be dogs in heaven, right? Like, I can get into all that kind of, like, nitpicky little stuff, right? Uh, I can also tithe 10% every month, try to read my Bible every day, and yet Jesus here is speaking to people just like me to say, hey, there is stuff that is more important than that. See, the scribes and Pharisees were accused of worrying about tithing their spices. This is also just a warning. If anybody ever puts cumin in, like, a red offering box, 
we're gonna have some problems, all right? Like, what's the, what is that about, right? We don't tithe off of our spices, don't do that. Uh, but back then, that was like the next level of tithing. It would be like if you made a commitment to give 10% of your income to the church, and then as you were walking in, you found a quarter on the street, and you spent the rest of the day trying to find like 2.5 cents somehow, like throwing a halfpenny in there just to make sure that you have like tithed every single thing. That's what these Pharisees were doing by tithing on the, uh, the spices that they had, not even just the actual food that they were eating. But instead, Jesus points out that you don't even honor the law by focusing on justice and mercy and faithfulness. You're tithing your dill and your mint and your cumin and missing out on the entire point of the law, which is around justice and mercy and faithfulness. Justice means to render judgment as to the truth of the matter, to stand up for the oppressed, to call out evil in all of its forms, to be a person of power who and mean or means who gives that power and means to others who can benefit because they don't actually have anyone to stand up for them. To stand up for justice means to stand up for truth even when it is inconvenient and painful and sacrificial for you. Second, he says mercy. This is the feeling of love and compassion for a fellow human being and then acting on it. The Greeks of the day actually thought that this was like a weakness. They were actively proselytizing people of, like, you should not have mercy. The Stoics were famous for this, to say, like, mercy is not a healthy human emotion that you should experience. You need to take care of yourself. But the entire Old Testament and Jesus here shows us that this is one of the key attributes of God. Can you imagine? Especially if you've been following Jesus for a while. Maybe you've, like, read the whole Bible. Like, can you imagine, like, the weirdness of, like, reading all of the Old Testament, as these Pharisees had obviously done, and thinking, you know what's really important is I need to make sure I give 10% of my cumin to the church this week and not showing any mercy on anyone. It's tragic. Faithfulness, this means belief. For followers of Jesus, belief is just as important as mercy and justice. It means to place your trust and your confidence in something. It means believing that God is actually more in control of the world that you, than you are. It means believing that he loves you and wants what's best for you, even in spite of difficult and suffering situations. And believing in God is more important than following a rule. Here, I believe, the hypocrisy is one that we are all too familiar with. You guys might imagine sitting here, uh, my office being right here in backstage. Uh, every once in a while, I have this weird impulse to come out on a Sunday morning, sort of like Mr. Rogers, you know, like take off one cardigan and put on another, but maybe one day. We'll save it for a special occasion. Uh, you can imagine sitting here, though, uh, all of my windows are glass just like this. I see lots of interesting things going on around me. This is an interesting corner in our neighborhood. Uh, this past week, actually, I saw this couple uh, they were yelling at each other as they were walking along the sidewalk, right, like uh, along this line right here. And I sort of sat there in my office, and I, like, was wondering, like, I was, like, in the middle of writing out an email, and I was like, oh, man, I have all this work to get done, like, you know, what's going on? And then they kept on yelling, and I was like, oh, man, maybe I need to, maybe I need to do something. What do I need to do? And then I'm like, ah, oh, this is kind of scary. Like, what's going to happen to me? Like, what's going on here, you know? And as I'm, like, wondering and fumbling around and, like, w wondering what I'm supposed to do, like, do I sprint out the door? Do I start knocking on the window? Like, what do I do? 
Uh, I see them like wander into the library, which is probably lucky in a good spot. They have a full-time security guard and might actually know how to engage in a situation like that. But I came, I watched them go in, and I walked back to my seat, and I thought to myself, like, how tragic is it that I was more worried about, like, what's the right thing to do in this situation? What about this work that I have to get done? What about this email that's not going to send itself, like... What's going to happen to me if I get in that situation? Like, why was I more worried about all of that than actually standing up for justice and for mercy in that situation? Like, why was I not an actor for justice and mercy? Why was I not someone to bring justice and mercy into a situation that had already fallen so far apart that people are yelling each other on the street? Why was I more concerned about myself and the rules that I feel like I need to follow than I was about two people who are loved by God and made in his image. Hypocrite self-assessment. Seven, this describes me perfectly. One, this doesn't describe me at all. Woe to you who choose rules over righteousness. The next two are also connected, and they'll go a little bit faster. These two are centered on looking good on the outside but being wrong on the inside. Verse 25, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you clean the outside of the cup and the plate, but inside they are full of greed and self-indulgence. You blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup and the plate, and then the outside also may be clean. Uh, cleaning insides and outsides of cups were actually exactly the same back then as they are today. Isn't that nice, you know? Like, if you want to drink out of a cup, you should clean the inside of it, and the outside would probably be nice too, but the inside's probably more important, right? That was an important thing back then. Greed actually means about the same thing in ancient Greek as it does in English. You get it, right? You want to appear generous and open-handed and giving and not self-indulgent, and then behind closed doors, you find yourself self-indulgent and greedy. I mean, I even think about this in terms of myself. Like, I try to be generous. We give to the church. We give to other organizations and missionaries. We give to other uh, people who are serving uh, the least of these and the marginalized. Uh, and I feel like I'm a generous and giving person, but I do not think I would feel comfortable showing you what I spent on sushi last year, right? Like, there is also a part of me that is incredibly self-indulgent and greedy. And we don't always show those two sides to everyone that we meet, right? In fact, only you know how greedy you really are. And the terrible thing about this whole game, right, is that it's not even like, oh, well, I spent less on this thing than this person did, but instead it's actually like your heart posture towards those things. Like how much of your energy and time and focus and emotional, you know, abilities is actually like pushing towards getting something? Could be something small, some little treat at the end of the day. It could be something big, like getting that next house or the next car or whatever it is. Only you can know your greed. And it's not even helpful to play the comparison game. Like the amount of greed that you actually have in your heart has absolutely nothing to do with the amount of money that you have in your bank account. Only you can know. Do you have an insatiable appetite for something? You're constantly thinking about the next thing to buy. Do you find yourself being stingy and, uh, and guarded with your money? 
And now, for the true hypocrite self-assessment, how does that actually track with the way that you want your friends to think that think about money? Like, how does that compare to the presentation of yourself that you're giving to those who know you well? Hypocrite self-assessment. Seven, this describes me perfectly. One, this doesn't describe me at all. The sixth woe, Jesus actually just leans into just sort of a blanket uncleanness and hypocrisy. Verse 27 says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanness. So you also outwardly appear righteous to others, but within you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. There are these things uh, called archetypes in literature. They're basically like tropes or memes. They show up frequently enough to be common, right? So think like the old wizened character who comes in and leads people. So you could use like Gandalf, Merlin, or Dumbledore who are all basically the same person. Also Patches O'Houlihan from the Dodgeball movie, right? Same exact archetype, all right? And I know that's like a stretch for some of you, uh, but it's basically like the same thing. And when I say that type of character, you can automatically make a bunch of assumptions about what they are and, and who they are. What's really sad, I think, is that there is an archetype of the unholy priest or the pastor with a secret, right? It's like sadly become all too common. And if you're a person like me who might read studies and surveys on like trustworthiness of, profess or of professions, uh, pastor over the past 50 years has gone from like one of the more trustworthy all the way down to one of the least. In fact, it's like natural for us, if you've grown up in this culture right here, to like naturally have more of a suspicion towards a person who pretends to be holy, a person who says that they are like, you know, one of the religious elite, more suspicion of them than you would of someone else. And sadly, that archetype exists because it's sadly too, too common. And it was common among the Pharisees as well. Jesus here calls them out. He says, outside, you appear beautiful, but inside you're full of dead people's bones and all uncleanness. This is the one that I can't even really like conjecture about what's happening inside of you. Because only you can truly know it. Is there something that on the outside you're making sure looks really good and clean and beautiful, but yet on the inside it's full of bones and uncleanness? Like if someone knew everything that you ever thought or felt, if they knew the true inside you, how well would it match up with the outside you? You make sure that people see you as great or holy or righteous, but secretly only you know the truth. Let's take the self-assessment. Seven, this describes me perfectly. One, this doesn't describe me at all. The final woe is a little bit more niche. It's woe to you who think you could do better. This one might be the most difficult one to hang your hat on, but basically, a lot of the messengers and prophets that God had sent through the years that we see throughout the Old Testament uh, were killed by the religious elite. They were killed by the people that they were actually sent to. Verse 29 says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you build the tombs of the prophets and decorate the monuments of the righteous, saying, If we had lived in the days of our fathers, we would not have taken part with them in shedding the bloods of the prophets, or the blood of the prophets. 
Verse 31 says, Thus you witness against yourselves that you are sons of those who murdered the prophets. Fill up then the measure of your fathers, you serpents, you brood of vipers. How are you to escape being sentenced to hell? So just as a recap, Jesus is saying, how crazy is it that you guys built a memorial to dead prophets because if you were around, you would have killed them too. It would be like someone who's like ragingly, like an outwardly vocally racist being like, hey, we should put up an MLK statue. That would be great, right? Like that's kind of what's happening here. Jesus is pointing out, hey, you guys would have killed those prophets the same way that your fathers did. So do not think that you are better. And the real crucial irony to this whole thing is that in less than a week, these same people would kill Jesus on the cross. I believe that one of the takeaways from this is the hypocrisy of believing that you would do better. I don't know if anybody else does this, if you're like, you know, as arrogant of a Bible reader as I am, but sometimes I'm like reading what happens with like the Israelites in the Old Testament, and I'm like, those dummies. If I was there, man, I would have followed God. I would have never struck that rock with a stick. I would have been happy with the manna. I would have been glad I was free from Egypt. But the reality is, if you have any self-awareness and you have any knowledge of just human nature, the reality is we probably would have acted exactly the way that they do. We are all human beings who screw up constantly. How dare we think that we could do better? I also think there's a biblical, biblical lesson in judgment here, wherein Christians are actually meant to be the least judgmental because we have a keen awareness of the presence and pull of sin in our lives. So very often, Christians are even famous for looking at other people and being like, man, I wish you wouldn't have done that. You're not very good and holy. You're a bad person. You're an awful person. When we should be the first people to see others and be like, man, I can't imagine the pull of sin that is on your life. I cannot imagine the things that you have had to go through. I cannot imagine uh, what I would do in your situation. And but for the grace of God, I would do the exact same thing. That when we see someone else in sin, it is a hypocritical and selfish thing to try and put them down for it. It is just an effort to make ourselves feel better. It's actually a Christ-honoring thing to be grateful for the forgiveness of Jesus that he has actually set us free from sin. To be honest about the ways in which we still fall into the trap of sin, even though we've been set free from it. That's the type of Christian that I want to be. All right, final hypocrite self-assessment. Seven, this describes me perfectly. One, this just doesn't describe me at all. Woe to you who think you would do better. All right, add up your scores. Uh, if you got higher than a 35, you might be a hypocrite. So I'm sorry. Uh, there's labels in the back. You can grab one on your way out. It just says hypocrite right there. No. I think uh, if you're at all like me, maybe you're all a lot better than me. That's quite possible. Uh, you're probably feeling a little hypocritical right now. So the question that I want to end with is what do we do to be less hypocritical? These are three ideas of how to be less hypocritical. First, be authentic. Be honest about who you really are. This is one of the best things about being a follower of Jesus, that being honest is, being pri or is prized over being perfect. In fact, the number one thing that I think people get wrong about Christianity who aren't followers of Jesus is that it's about being perfect. 
In fact, Christianity, Christianity is about one person who was perfect, Jesus, and a lot of people who know that they aren't perfect and need that perfect person, right? So we ought to be the most honest about our imperfections. Being a part of a real community of Jesus is being able to say, hey, I'm not perfect. I've screwed up. I've done wrong. And you have screwed up, and you have done wrong, and we're probably going to be okay. We don't want to stay that way forever, right? We don't want to sort of like glory in our wickedness and uncleanness, but instead we want to challenge each other by being honest of working towards righteousness. You need someone in your life that you can tell all of your dirty little secrets to. It's a natural and necessary part of the Christian walk. You can call it confession or call it vulnerability, call it whatever you want, but that is a necessary part of being a part of a Christian community. Now you'll notice uh, in the bottom of this apartment complex that we don't have like a confessional booth or anything like that. Uh, I think that would be one of the weirdest parts of being a priest, right? Like anytime somebody just walks up and I'm like, all right, I'll sit in this elevator with you and we'll have a really awkward conversation and then we'll both move on for your lives. Uh, but I will say, if you have something that you need to talk to somebody about, you can do that with me or any of the other leaders and staff here at the church. That would actually be a beautiful thing because in that moment, I can be completely confidential and so can they. And we can also be someone who tells you that God forgives you, which is the same confessional challenge I'm giving to each and every one of you. That Christian community, true and beautiful Christian community, involves confession and forgiveness. That we don't actually have the power to forgive sins against God. We can forgive sins against us. We have the power to tell one another that no matter what it is that someone else is confessing to you, they can be forgiven for it. And that God wants to forgive them for it. But if you don't confess to someone else, at least, at least be real with God. God already knows. Yeah, whatever it is, even whatever just popped into your head as soon as I said that, God already knows about it. And confessing to him in prayer brings it out in the open so that you can feel and embrace his forgiveness. It is a cathartic experience for you just to be able to acknowledge the forgiveness that he has already given to you. I actually do this every single time that I take communion. Every single Sunday that we take communion here, we celebrate the death and burial and resurrection of Jesus and his forgiveness for our sins. And what I do as I am eating and drinking of this forgiveness is I confess my sins to God and thank him for his forgiveness. And this only comes from being honest with Jesus and myself on the ways that I have failed. The second way to not be a hypocrite is to pursue righteousness. The forgiveness is great, and it is unlimited, but it is also meaningless if it pushes us to continue to live in sin. And instead, we ought to take our honest and authentic selves to God, accept his forgiveness, and then seek to live righteous lives out of gratitude for the love that he has given to us. Let's actually try to be those people that we want to be. Scripture tells us that we're no longer enslaved to sin, so why not let the power of God fill us up and let nothing hold us back from living the lives that we want to live? I pray that we would live like Paul commands Timothy. He says, But as for you, O man of God, flee from these things. Flee these things. Pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, and gentleness. Finally, 
And I think this is probably the most important one. The way to not be a hypocrite is to depend, depend on the forgiveness of Jesus. We must rest in the good forgiveness of Jesus, knowing that we are not going to live up to his standard all of the time, knowing that we are going to fail and we have failed, and knowing that Jesus will forgive us. The beautiful thing in this passage is that the same Jesus who called out these woes and crushes us with knowing the way that we fail to live up to his standards, calls out the fact that we are two-faced, we are pretenders. That same Jesus is the one who would later this week actually die for those people. He would take all of their sins, even these very woes, he would take their hypocrisy to the cross and die for it. And he took yours too. So he died so that instead of getting the horror and the disaster and the woes that we deserve, we get to take his life. He took the woes. We get to take the kingdom of heaven. So if you're feeling the great weight of your own hypocrisy today, count it as a blessing. Embrace it. Recognize the pain and the crushing nature of it as you are honestly and authentically uh, assessing yourself and your life. Because as great as the weight of that guilt that you feel, know that Jesus' forgiveness is greater. And it is free. And it is for you. And it is never-ending. My hope and my prayer is that we leave this place not as perfect people, as less hypocritical people who are even more in love with Jesus and thankful for his forgiveness over our lives. Thanks for listening. We hope it brought you closer to Jesus and more in touch with the world around you. Being a Christian in today's culture can be hard. Fortunately, he gives us the gift of community through his church. So we would love to invite you to join us for one of our Sunday morning gatherings or for one of our weekly small groups. All the details you need can be found on our website, dwelldenver.org.